talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. Hello, and welcome to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie-by-movie and television series-by-television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're stepping outside the Marvel Cinematic Universe and into the multiverse for a look at The Punisher, originally released in October 1989. Technically, this places it somewhere between Yondu teaching Peter Quill how to fire a blaster and T'Challa and Shuri's father going to see Back to the Future Part 2. And, you guessed it, there's absolutely no crossover with either of them. I'm Tim Worthington, and we'll be finding out what I thought of this version of The Punisher shortly. Meanwhile, joining me to give her thoughts on The Punisher is academic Miriam Kent. Miriam, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter, at DrMarvel underscore. Okay, so before we go any further, Miriam, what happens in The Punisher? So, The Punisher from 1989, to highlight again, is a film about the Marvel character who's a gun-wielding vigilante who seeks revenge after his family is killed by the mob, essentially. And he goes on a murderous rampage. And yeah, there's a lot of shooting and a lot of blood and violence. And it's definitely on the darker spectrum of Marvel comics. So, Miriam, how much did you know about The Punisher before you saw this? I was quite familiar with The Punisher, having read the comics, at least quite a few of them. There's, you know, very famously Garth Ennis's run on The Punisher was kind of what elevated the character to kind of more quality comics storytelling, whatever you understand by that term. But yeah, I mean, The Punisher kind of debuted in the 1970s as a killer vigilante foe for Spider-Man. He was an Italian-American anti-hero who likes to shoot people because of, you know, the aforementioned kind of violence towards his family, but also kind of contextualizing that within the era in which he was made especially when he got his own limited comic book series in the 1980s which is very much kind of the reagan era of hyper masculinity with films like dirty harry and death wish it's comparable to those kinds of narratives so yeah pretty much well informed about the character not quite prepared for the amount of nude praying that occurs in the sewers but yeah yeah that's the important thing to bring in is that there are some differences that they've made for no readily obvious reason for from the comic book version that kind of compromised the character a bit. They make Frank Castle less complex because, you know, obviously, whereas originally he was a soldier whose family, as you say, were murdered by the mob. And let's just give nothing away in case people watch the Netflix version of The Punisher, which, you know, is pretty true to the comic books. But, you know, that is what informs him to basically take the law into his own hands. That, But in this, they've made him 
a detective whose family, and they changed the gender of his children as well, were killed by a car bomb. It's a bit of a difficult thing to compare in this way, but, you know, the tragedy of Frank Castle is what drives him in the comics. I don't know, it kind of makes him harder to relate to and removes a lot of the complicated questions that are normally around the character. And also, he lives in the sewers, as you say, which, given this was around the time of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I wonder if he met them. That would have been an interesting crossover. I want to research if that has actually ever happened. But yeah, quite baffling changes from the source material. Again, like you say, that you can't quite follow up. There's no skull on his T-shirt, which I guess that was pretty much the main point of contention that I think fans have with this film is that it's not really the Punisher. It's just Dolph Lundgren in a tight shirt, which is fine. (laughs) But yeah, it doesn't really read as the Punisher. And yeah, like you said, they changed the gender of the kids. I'm not sure from like a gender perspective, that's just like a complete sort of evisceration of the feminine aspect of his life if you want to go kind of read it and do like a deep dive in in that sense but it is an odd one there are various elements of it that were clearly down to budget I think it had a budget of $9 million, which isn't a huge amount even for back then. And it was shot in Australia as well due to budgetary reasons because it was cheap to shoot in Australia. And sometimes you can kind of tell that it's not actually New York that he's in, which also kind of distances it from the character quite a lot. Yeah, you mentioned Dolph Lundgren and I just wanted to talk about him for a second because he's a really interesting guy more than people would think really because I don't know how well known it is that obviously he was a martial arts champion, but it's also a highly skilled chemical engineer who had a PhD, I think, at 22. And the reason he came to America was to teach at MIT. And, you know, this blew my mind because he was romantically involved with Grace Jones for a long time. I always just assumed they were like a celebrity couple, but apparently it was while he was still studying at MIT that he met her and she encouraged him to try acting. And I think he was somebody who straightened the off because, you know, he'd not set out to be an actor at all. You know, he'd been involved in sports and academia first, that he knew his limitations and I think he plays them really well because you know probably his most famous role is in Rocky 4 as Ivan Drago where he does a lot of that without dialogue you know the faces he pulls when the communist handlers are telling him not to answer that question and so on I think he knew exactly what to, and I think he although the treatment of Frank Castle in this film leaves a lot to be desired I think he does quite a good job with what he's given yeah I mean he's a very facial actor I guess you could say and that's that's true in The Punisher as well. When this was, well, it was, I should clarify, it was straight to video in the States. It was released kind of worldwide in other countries, in the cinema rather. And there were a few kind of features and interviews that he did before it came out. And there was one particular one that was actually an Australian paper that was pretty much just trying to take the mickey out of Paul Dolph Lundgren, who is a treasure, truly, and just kind of positioning him as this kind of dim-witted, muscly kind of bonehead who doesn't really know what he's, you know, talking about. And he was trying to, like, raise important points. He'd been shooting in, like, Namibia, I think, for another film that he did. And he was, you know, trying to draw attention to, like, social inequalities and things and, you know, talking about how karate gives him, like, a sense of purpose in life and balances him out. And they were just not having it and just trying to kind of position him as this kind of dim-witted bimbo or himbo as the contemporary term would be so yeah he is a really interesting person and it is it was kind of sad (laughs) reading this feature on him because he was so kind of full of hope that you know taking on these roles would give him these big opportunities to play like proper character parts but yeah he just kind of he fizzled out a little bit he never made it to be quite as big as Van Damme for instance but 
yeah, he had aspirations. He's not a terrible actor. And like you say, I do think he kind of plays up to that. It's almost kind of Robert Pattinson in Twilight. There's just kind of a vacant quality about him. And I think that's intentional. As a more positive spin on that, I do remember when this came out on video in the UK, which I think was 1991, which would have been when I saw it. He appeared on The Word, the late night Channel 4 youth show, to yes. promote it. And obviously, Terry Christian and Amanda Decadene, who were presenting it, obviously thought, you know, like that, like, oh, he's a meathead, we can have some fun here. And he was running rings around them. You know, they were both good, competent presenters. I think he did, and I've got to say, I remembered, and we'll come back to another reason in a minute why I was maybe biased against this film at the time, but watching it again, I was expecting it to be terrible. It's a lot more likeable than I remembered. I don't think it's brilliant. It's not the right way to do The Punisher at all. But it's basically, I felt it was like an overlong episode of something like the shows that came in the wake of Cagney and Lacey where they'd be on at 10pm on ITV and, you know, your parents watched them but you weren't sure why. You know, those sort of dark New York detective shows. And the opening titles of it are exactly, they don't look like the opening titles of a film. They look like TV opening titles. They really do look a bit cheap and nasty. But... I thought it was okay for what it was and the really surprising thing is there's nothing objectionable in it really. Particularly I was expecting there'd be, you know, kind of an unpleasant attitude towards women and that there isn't. I think the only things really that I thought were there's a couple of what I call 80s stereotypes were, you know, they're not actually offensive depictions of other cultures. It's just they're a little less enlightened than we might have now. And the other thing was there's a subplot about human trafficking where it's treated almost like a, a glamorous crime that you know only the creme de la creme of international criminals would get involved in and you compare it to in the MCU version of Daredevil there's that amazing scene where he confronts one of the Russian human traffickers who basically sounds fed up of the whole thing and you know as against it as Matt Murdock is but it's kind of there's always going to be people buying and if there is there's always going to be people who find themselves selling which you know is treating it as the, the grubby inhumane thing it is but it's a little bit I don't know glamorous isn't the right word but that was the only thing in the whole film that felt a bit off to me yeah it's interesting because it's definitely a product of its time it's definitely kind of in line with those 1980s kind of hard body action films kind of trying to do that and there was a bit of discussion at the time of its release about whether or not it would be some kind of competitor for batman the tim burton version but (laughs) 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 but yeah i mean lady tanaka who is the leader of the yakuza who's like in some kind of turf war with the mafia she's kind of like a Japanese dragon lady in a way and there's an awkward thing that like she has a daughter who's she wears like a like a sailor's costume at one point I think which is a little bit sort of stereotypes of kind of Japanese teenage girls but then at the same time the daughter isn't played by a Japanese actress or even like an Asian actress I think she's like an Eastern European actress but then she could be like an adopted daughter I'm not even sure what's going on here but yeah there are some awkward issues about it but it's a functional cheap looking film if society won't punish the guilty he will you see this board here every time he kills somebody I put a red pin in it. So far, the only thing that I've got to show for is these little calling cards here and a 
shows up within 1,000 yards of me. He'll find out what the word punished really means. He defends the innocent. But if you're guilty, he gives no warning and shows no mercy. What the hell is this? Trouble. Dolph Lundgren. Lewis Gossett, Jr. Mr. P. Happy hunting! The Punisher. Justice with a vengeance. In fact, the only two real sore points I had that weren't related to anything like that were, first of all, we've got to address this, there's a psychic shake. Now, obviously, in the comics for a long time, there's Micro, who, you know, is disgruntled inside of... He's a figure in intelligence who feeds information to Frank. You know, that makes a lot of sense, because you can see how he'd become embittered with decisions that were made and would want things to go a different way. Here, we get somebody who appears to be an actor, an alcoholic actor called Shake, who talks like one of those men on Twitter who, when women say, please don't call me love, will say, oh, verily, do not argue with with this point. And he rhymes a lot as well and i don't understand what is the backstory there it doesn't make any sense at all yeah again there is no reason why he talks in like limericks he's an odd one and there's a lot of oddness about this film i guess it's just tying into the kind of overwhelming strangeness of this film and the other thing is that it does that thing that until the marvel cinematic universe version of the punisher they always got wrong it's got that score that's somewhere between industrial rock and michael nyman which you know i can kind of see that people might look at the punisher's world and hear that in their heads but he is a character as they did in the mcu is you know he's all about classic rock and country blues in fact they actually when they did the series they brought back the idea that he was a keen guitarist and i'm hoping now that because they're going to do blade in the mcu and my desperate hope is that they'll remember that blade is a jazz trumpeter and that maybe they can form a band in picking the blues and blade blowing a bit of jazz but yeah <laughs> that's a very purest reason to feel disgruntled with it but it does show that it does underline the fact that nobody adapting the punisher ever got it right until marvel got to do it themselves yeah i mean again there was a strange time in films where soundtracks or scores had strange industrial elements in them for whatever reason. I think it ties into the kind of sewer setting. And everything's <laughs> quite grey in the film. It's like, it's a little bit goth, but then at the same time, not entirely. The country and western kind of soundtrack works, because Frank Castle, he's as complex as that conservative element is in him. I would say that, you know, overwhelmingly, he is a more or less conservative hero. And, you know, country and western music, as much as it kind of was inspired by the traditions of black music within the southern states of America is, is more or less kind of aligned with conservative politics. So it does kind of work in that sense. One interesting thing about when it came out, though, is this is why I had a bit of a downer on it, you know, even at the time it came out, was that it was in the wake of, this is something that exercises me greatly, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. The idea in the late 80s that comics became acceptable after, it was mainly after Watchmen and The Dark Knight, you know, the idea that DC had pioneered the graphic novel. And really, before that, Marvel had done Secret Wars, they'd done Days of Future Past, The Creed 
Skrull War, but dear me, they've all got jokes in and they've got funny psychedelic graphics. So, you know, they're not dark, they're not serious. And, you know, you've got all these features on The Late Show and in The Observer and so on about how it's okay to like comics now. And I remember people in school who, you know, 18 months earlier would have been making fun of me for still liking Spider-Man, were suddenly carrying around, you know, the Punisher Assassin's Guild and Return to Big Nothing because that was the obvious character to do graphic novels of for Marvel. I felt a bit put out by that. I was kind of thinking, well, I remember reading, you know, seeing him in Spider-Man when I was like seven and being really, really, it really messed with me that I mentioned when we did the actual episode on the MCU Punisher with Mick Wright that the first trip I saw him in, he jumped through a window and shouted some drug addicts, your salvation's come too late, tell me the names of your dealers now. And I was thinking, this guy's brilliant. He turned the page over. Here's a couple arguing just without looking, shoots up and shoots the husband. And, you know, for a seven-year-old to see that and think, well, hang on, that's not what... I wanted him to do. I kind of felt that complication got lost a bit in that, but also I was just thinking, he's my thing and other people hijacking it, so I don't like this film, which is a, a very kid attitude to have, but I'm a bit more well disposed towards it now, I think. Well, I mean, that's more mature than some of the gentlemen who I know who are in, in the similar ages. There's still very much a kind of protective fanboy quality about a lot of superheroes. I do think that The Punisher wouldn't have functioned quite in the same way if he had been more exposed at any kind of earlier point yeah he had that spider-man appearance but that was very much i mean he was kind of a villain and he was he was kind of just created to to kind of be a foe for spider-man when he got his series in the 1980s as you say that was very much within the what is you know in, in kind of historicizations of comic books within the modern age which associated with and i say this kind of in air quotes adult superheroes that is kind of superhero comics are culturally positioned as being being acceptable for grown-ups to like, which, as you say, they had Watchmen appearing in Time's 100 Greatest Novels list. And that was all about, like, dark and gritty equals good. It was also about male authorship as well. Uh, these kind of canonical counts of comics history are very much about, like, the pioneering male authors like Alan Moore or Frank Miller or any of the other kind of greats that you come across. So that violent element, that, that dark and gritty, again, quote-unquote, <laughs> quality about him that that wouldn't have worked in quite the same way if he had kind of proliferated at, at any other point in time and the really interesting thing is that immediately this comes out in tandem with those graphic novels more or less and almost immediately marvel specified that this iteration of the punisher like they did with howard the duck earlier in the decade had his own multiverse that he was in you know as if to keep this relatively glossy in some ways empty-headed compared to the comic frank castle version kind to keep him out of harm's way i mean i don't think now they're messing about with the multiverses i don't know if it's likely that this frank castle is going to show up but he may do but i think that's quite telling that you know there have been so many other things where i don't think they ever designated the 70s tv series to have their own universe i don't think spider-man and his amazing friends had one i think it was a it was a very kind of subtle way of distancing themselves from it. Yeah, no, I was amazed to discover that this is designated officially, apparently, Earth 58627. So yeah, as you say, it is its own narrative universe. I would love for Spider-Man and his amazing friends to be part of his own universe and, and reappear at some point. That would be great. But yeah, I would also love to see Dolph Lundgren again, who was great in mostly everything. Well, that brings me into what would normally be my closing question, because normally in these non-MCU ones, I ask about, you know, a common cast member with an actual 
MCU property and is that character better than that character this lot keeps showing up again but in DC films and series so it doesn't really work but what I'm reduced to asking is Miriam is Earth 58627's Frank Castle better than Earth 58470's Howard the Duck yeah I would say yeah Do you require an explanation? Well, like you, I would actually like to see this Frank Castle turn up again in some way. It'd just be nice to acknowledge him, whereas let's stick with the Howard that we've got at the moment. <laughs> all, all his very short appearances are much better than that one film. Miriam, thank you, and Excelsior. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this... Don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.